everyone and welcome to uh, KKNW 11:50 a.m. Uh, this is an interview with uh, Professor uh, Dr. Mark Skidmore from Michigan State University, and we're here to talk about his experience uh, on his uh, journey re relating to an article that he wrote called "COVID-19 Illness and Vaccinations Experiences in Social Circles After COVID-19 Vaccination Decisions." And uh, again, we'll get into the finer details of the. Uh, uh, controversy that uh, that came out of this. But uh, first and foremost, uh, welcome uh, Dr. Skidmore to the show. Thank you, Javier. I, I really appreciate being able to talk with you and uh, it's it's been quite a journey. <laughs> Absolutely, it's been. So a little background for our listeners here. Uh, Dr. Uh, Skidmore is a professor of economics over at Michigan State University, uh, but he has a number of different uh, areas of expertise and uh, medical economics, if I'm not mistaken, is an area that you work in as well, correct? Yeah, I do, I do work in health-related issues um, and overlap with um, disaster economics and vulnerability. And um, so that's sort of one arena that I work in. And then I, I, I have sort of a bread and butter in public finance and public budgeting as well as regional economics. So over time, you, you, you link into different topics and learn skills and um, apply them to different questions. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully I'll have the opportunity to ask a little bit more about that particular area as well. But we will focus today on uh, the, uh, the articles that uh, really propelled a, uh, a significant uh, tempest uh, regarding censorship in, in the scientific literature. Um, one thing I do want to ask is, you know, uh, what was your rationale? Uh, what was what was the decisions that drove you to look into this, basically doing a uh, random sample survey of the American population? That's a good, that's a good place to start. Uh, uh, because of a few connections I had when all of the lockdowns occurred, I got connected with a number of medical and, uh, professionals and scientists and was attending a group called Doctors for COVID Ethics. And um, this group, uh, led by Sutrit Bhakti and Dr. Michael Palmer, um, were saying, well, first of all, that the lockdowns didn't make any sense from a right. medical standpoint. And I, I quickly agreed and also <laughs> wrote, wrote about that as well. But then as the proposed solution came out uh, with this new experimental uh, gene therapeutic vaccine, um, these scientists are like, wait a second, this is, um, this is not safe. <laughs> well, first of all, it's experimental. And second of all, all there, there's the science behind it is not sound. There, there right. are likely going to be problems. And Sushirat Bhakti was one of the first to say, you know, we're going to see blood clots and other problems. And um, and before the vaccine was ever rolled out, he said those things. And so uh, it was on the radar screen. And then, of course, the vaccines were rolled out and um, we started to see indicators in the air systems and other uh, um, monitors across the country. And, and, you know, so some people are saying, well, we know that 
the VAR system and other similar systems don't capture every event that um, occur, every adverse event, and then we, we can't be sure that all of the adverse events that are reported in the system were, were caused. Um, so you, you can try to back out numbers that way. There were some other indicators, but we just didn't know how extensive the, the damage was, although we saw significant uh, upticks. And I had done some work in the disaster arena in the health arena in which uh, one of the questions that my co-authors co and I asked was, what is the sense of the health situation of those around you? Oh. And, um, and I just thought, well, this would be an appropriate way to look at it because, you know, you have, uh, you know, uh, indicators, but if you if if you took the vaccine and you were significantly harmed, yes, or or you died, you you couldn't tell anybody necessarily, right? You couldn't fill out a survey, but if you were close to somebody who did, who had experienced harm or you perceived experienced harm, you you could tell somebody about exactly. it exactly. And so that was that was the strategy. Let's just see what we can learn from from the experiences that people see in there among family and friends exactly. and then report on it. And then, um, you know, a key part of the, the study that we're talking about was, well, does this have any impact or influence on your decision to be vaccinated? And as it turns out, it, it, it was highly correlated. If you saw somebody among your friends and family who you thought had been harmed by the COVID vaccine, I'm not, right. you know, I'm going to hold off. Exactly. And what's interesting is that um, at the time, um, I think in a lot of our colleagues had, were having difficulty trying to establish any sort of valid or uh, um, detailed information as to the extent of damage, yeah. uh, potential damage, uh, even with CDC statistics. It was very difficult to tease out what was potentially a vaccine injury versus a background uh, incidence of say, for example, stroke, myocarditis, or any of a number of other conditions, the data sets are just not there for, for review. Was that something that also propelled you into looking into, uh, into using that survey? Sure. I, I mean, we, we, you know, there were indicators, but we just, it, it, at that time, it was really hard to back out any kind of estimate of how many people were being harmed. And right. I, actually here in, in Michigan, uh, one of the radio, I don't remember which one, but one of the newscast radio stations in Detroit had put out something on Facebook and they said, you know, and they were encouraging people to be vaccinated in there. They asked, well, do you know anybody who, you know, or please let, let us know if you've experienced significant uh, uh, um, illness from COVID. And inadvertently, people started saying, well, no, not really, but the vaccine is, you know, and it just started to flow in on Facebook, you know, really? so-and-so had a problem here and somebody oh. had a heart attack and, wow. and it just kind of went, it just, you know, as soon as somebody, as soon as a few people did that, uh, it sort of encouraged other people to say, yeah, me too, me too. And so they quickly shut it down. But it, that's like an example of, uh, you know, the kind of thing that, that, that was happening. And, and we don't, you know, we don't talk about it, right? Uh, at the no, time, a lot of people didn't want to discourage people from taking the vaccine and cause vaccine hesitancy. So exactly. it, it might have been okay to talk about 
COVID illness and somebody getting really sick and having a lung scarring and ongoing long COVID or, or, or they definitely passed away. Right. It was okay to talk about that, but a lot right. of people were very hesitant to talk about um, how they were feeling after they got the, the shot. Absolutely. Now, one one curiosity that I do have is in uh, in your department, uh, when you were formulating the uh, the survey and the idea and, and the study, um, was it something that you shared with your colleagues? Was it something that you bounced back and forth with them, or was it something that you needed to you know basically keep in the back burner? I I kind of did it on my own. Okay. I I after I completed the survey, I you know, I shared it with a few of my colleagues, but it, it's a, a little tough. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, outside of the university that I had some trusted colleagues who are, you know, who provided input, but on campus, I, I really didn't, um, I didn't really talk with people uh, too much. Uh, I, you know, in my own way, I was doing the best I could to um, push back uh, against some of the administrative policies around COVID and mandatory testing, and, and then I, I I did everything I could to you know to let my views be known about um, a mandatory vaccination of young people who have very little risk from COVID. Right. Uh, so I you know at that time there was a, a certain degree of tension, and uh, you know. So Absolutely, it is what it is, and you, you're 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 doing your best to be respectful, but you see what's going on, and it doesn't make sense to you, and you're, you know, you're 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 trying to have a discourse or a debate, and um, there's just no room for it. Exactly, and that that is probably one of the most uh, striking striking uh, aspects of this entire uh, episode is there was debate one way, but not the other way. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I wanted to mention to the uh, public is that you initially had this paper published in BMC Infectious Disease. And BMC is a fairly prestigious journal, and it has a very rigorous peer review process, which, by the way, you passed, and it got published. So can you give us a little uh, little history of what happened after your peer-reviewed accepted and published paper hit the, uh, the, the EPUB site for BMC infectious disease. Yeah. Uh, well, um, so the first thing that happened is that several notable scientists and medical professionals uh, started to tweet about it and get it out there through the social media. So it just, it just went out everywhere. Uh, and, uh, um, and so it just started ticking up. There's a measure called altmetric on, uh, you know, and it, it tracks like 25 million different scientific uh, um, articles. And mine out of 25 million is still ranked about 830 out of 25 million. So it just got, I mean, it just went viral. It just got so much exposure. So it, it was the, the combination of all the exposure with the controversial finding, because, you know, what, what I did wasn't particularly controversial. It's, no. it's just survey tools, right? And you use the survey to evaluate the likelihood that people will make one choice over another. I did that. That's not too controversial. No. Standard fare. 
And then um, it's very common for you to draw inferences from the survey to the general population. Exactly. That is sort of bread and butter survey research. And, um, and so that's what I did. Um, the problem is, is that um, it, it, the, number, the number of projected fatalities and injuries was, was really large. It was oh, yeah. like 280,000 in the first year. Oh, yeah. And um, so the question is, is that reasonable? And then, so that led to complaints coming to the journal, um, which forced a re-review and, 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 you know, and so I had, I answered a bunch of questions and all over again. And oh, yeah. ultimately the editorial board retracted the paper. It's still available online. You can, you can find it just has the big red scarlet retracted on there. <laughs> <laughs> the scarlet letter R. Yeah. The big R, the big scarlet letter. Uh, oh. and, uh, so it's, it's still there and it still gets, you know, noted. And, and um, but anyway, I, I went through all of that. And, um, and then in the media, there was a, you know, a, a blast out and massive criticism of, of the approach, et cetera. And, you know, um, the thing, you know, like, I guess, without going into all of the details about the reasons for the retraction, you know, with a survey, um, you're asking people for their impressions. Exactly. Um, and some of those impressions will be accurate and, and, and some probably not. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but you're getting this feedback and then you're drawing inferences from it, but you can't, you can't verify with certainty that whether that person that they said had died or had a stroke, um, actually was caused by the vaccine. Right. So the reason it was retracted is because I couldn't go back and verify all of the recorded problems in fatalities. <laughs> Even though in the article originally it said, That's this is a limitation of this type of research. We're not going to be able to identify, but this is cause for concern. That was exactly like, this is cause for concern. We should be looking at this more carefully. And that was the conclusion. Yep. Right? <laughs> I still can't believe that they actually kept on hammering you about that um, when, you know, you clearly stated it. And in your rebuttals to each of the questions that they had, I was literally smacking my forehead on my desk at some of the responses that you received. And the rationale for it absolutely was nonsensical. Uh, survey data is... Uh, you know, the, the current version of how surveys are done is so impactful. And so uh, it has such uh, inf accuracy in providing feedback, especially at a population level, where, where the, the survey parameters, when you look back retrospectively on data that's collected, I mean, actual data, it's amazing how closely they match up now. Yeah. I mean, it is a powerful tool and to see so many people that should know better, especially MD, PhDs with training uh, on epidemiology and, and uh, at least statistics, they, they should know better than to say those, the things that they're saying. For, yeah. Honestly. yeah, if I could just even respond. Um, uh, <laughs> better not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think you even need fancy statistics no. to have a look at the uh, supplementary material and the comments that came in from 
from the respondents about what they experienced or what they exactly. saw among their friends and family. And it's like, okay, it, you know, and you can do lots of things to try to say, well, okay, well, so-and-so had a stroke or a major blood clot or a clot-induced heart attack, exactly. you know, and you can say, well, that does happen sometimes among older people. Right. But I, I knew in the survey the rough age of the people that they were referring to. And most, a high proportion of these recorded events, these adverse events that they're seeing, are not among the very old with all kinds of health problems. They're, they're more heavily weighted among young people. Oh, that, was the other, that, that was the other thing that absolutely shocked me, um, was the proportion. I'm just going to pull this up right now. Um, present here. And I think you're referring to this particular figure. Yeah. Yeah. And if you could walk us through it. So we have a, for people that are not, are not uh, seeing this and are hearing this, this is a chart of bar graph with age distributions from 20 to 24, 25 to 34, 35 to 44, all the way up to 84 years of age. And we're looking at uh, a ratio of, and, and I'll let you explain from here. Sure. Um, a lot of the data on fatalities are recorded as uh, per 100,000 people. And so what I did is I, um, among uh, the survey participants, of which there were about uh, 2,300, there's a certain size of social network. And so there are certain recorded fatalities per the, the, the social network. And so this is um, per that size. So you can see the, the yellow is what the survey participants said they saw in terms of fatalities from COVID itself. And, um, and, and actually, it's a little surprising to me that there were as many uh, recorded fatalities among this sort of middle age group here. Um, but it is heavier on the older side. It affected older people more, which is consistent with what we know about COVID. Um, and then the blue... Um, are the recorded COVID illness fatalities. And here you can see that there are very few among the old and far more among the young. And um, this is not COVID, it's not illness. And, and um, it, it's something else. And it, it's like people reported, like if somebody maybe died in their 70s from something, they, they didn't tend to attribute that to the vaccine, um, uh. right? Um, so in some ways, to me, this might be an underestimate because I'm, you know, we know that older people um, were not as resilient to the vaccine harms. You know, that is a very good point. And thank you for bringing that up. So this also has uh, one of the um, limitations is that, as you said, you can't go back and verify exactly what they died from. So it, we're looking potentially at a real underestimate of the number that you came up with. It could be. It could be. Um, Interesting. They tended to report the ones uh, among younger, the younger cohort. And that, to me, that signals that they're more confident. There you go. There you that go. That person was affected by the vaccine. So that is probably one of the uh, one of the takeaways of, of the survey that you did is that these are estimates and they're probably on the lower end for um, uh, vaccine related illnesses and deaths and injuries and maybe even overestimated 
on uh, the cause of death from COVID itself, because again, we all we were relying pr- primarily on PCR tests uh, for a lot of yeah. this diagnosis. Sure. Yeah, and and with the COVID illness, um, you know, we we know that a lot of people who died with COVID didn't. That might not have been the primary cause of death. It's just that the CDC changed the definitions, and so the medical authorities are then obligated to report it as a COVID fatality, and they are likely to tell the loved ones that that so and so died from COVID, and so the survey will pick up what people are told about the, the fatality. So, so um, it, it I, I would, you know, would match sort of the CDC definition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the COVID Ill, um, vaccine fatalities, um, are, uh, I mean, of course, it's rife with, uh, I, I think, probably underestimate rather than an overestimate. Um, you know, just for example, within my own circles here on campus, I I know somebody who was going out for a walk one day and said, oh, you're heading out? He goes, yeah, I had a blood clot in my leg. And... Um, and he goes, I, I, you know, I think I slept in the bathtub or something and I got a blood clot. And okay. I'm like, no, I, I mean, I, I don't know what caused your blood clot, but this is a classic adverse event from, from a vaccine for a, a, a young person to have this problem. You know, oh. I'll, 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 let me just go through a couple of these. Another mm-hmm. colleague um, sent out a note about a former student who um, had a clot-induced heart attack, and um, a young person healthy, and uh, n- no one recognized that as a potential uh, vaccine adverse right. event. Nobody, if if, the, if any, you know, in this case, most of the people who had heard that would not have responded to the survey. Yeah, that was likely an adverse event because they they just don't know um, the potential kinds of consequences. Right. Another person I know. Um, uh, a brother died for no reason. He was healthy. He had a family, was happy, and he just died. And um, colleagues here don't recognize that as a a possible vaccine adverse event because they don't know to look for it. See, and that is exactly um, another limitation and why it's probably an underestimate. Yeah, if anything, it's an underestimate. Yeah. And and then you can divide out um, by political affiliation or by vaccine status, and you get quite different estimates. But even among the uh, group who would be most pro-establishment, uh, pro-vaccine, pro-federal policy are still recording vaccine adverse events in large numbers. So... Um, you know, it again, it's an indicator. It's not like the answer. It's just, you know, I, I gave a, um, I, after quite some time, I was able to give a brown bag seminar here um, on campus. And, uh, and I, you know, but it, it was, it was there. It took a long time to be able to get there to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So controversial, but, um, uh, but anyway, um, a lot of people still are unaware of the all the ways in which this type of vaccine can lead to harm, whether it's uh, affecting the immune system, the neurological system, the, 
the, the respiratory, or the, yeah. you know, and so on. So, um, so they don't know when something happens, you have to know somebody well enough to know their vaccine status. And then you'd have to be aware that, man, that could have been caused by. Yeah. And then the, the recent publication, uh, I believe, let's see if I can find this one, uh, of Brogna et al. Um, on proteomic clinical applications. They did a study in Italy where they took 20 fully vaccinated individuals and 20 unvaccinated individuals, and they did a mass spectroscopy, mass spectroscopy analysis looking for a particular uh, protein sequence that was specific for the mRNA spike protein. So this is not the naturally occurring spike protein, but the yeah. Moderna, Moderna and Pfizer spike protein. Um, and what they found was uh, rather interesting in that, um, I'll share this right here, in that they were still detecting spike protein uh, in the blood of 50% uh, of their fully vaccinated group, ranging from 67 to about 180 days post-vaccination. The group that was unvaccinated had no detectable levels of this spike protein. And I think in the supplement sections that they have here, they couldn't even detect viral naturally occurring spike protein. So I think one of the things that is also important, and again, to your point, these things can happen with a very long time lag. Absolutely. Because you still have that, you know, that circulating spike protein. Yeah. So that's another confounder as well. Yeah, it's not... Uh, many adverse events occur in, in close proximity to the vaccine. And so that's likely what the survey is capturing. But um, there are, you know, I just uh, saw an artic uh, a brief article about uh, an eight-year-old child who was the, oh, yes. uh, you know, it's really sad, but in Israel, he was sort of the poster child for the vaccine. He, he just died of a heart attack. At and eight years old. At eight years old. And this is, you know, well after he had been vaccinated the first times around. Yeah. So and, the, and, and we know that excess mortality has been elevated ever since, and it appears to be not going down, if anything, rising. And it's much higher now than it was during the pandemic. And voila, there's, it's not news, right? Yeah. Um, Pierre Corey and uh, his co-author, I don't remember her name, managed to get uh, an article in USA Today just to note <laughs> that the excess mortality is high and the insurance data is showing it, and we should be wanting to know why. Exactly. Uh, and, of course, he couldn't make the next step and say, well, what changed that might have led to this? But at least, it, it, you know, that's the only thing I've seen in, in, in the, the legacy media about it. That, that truly amazes me. Um, and again, like you said, uh, it's one topic that we can go talk about it in one direction, but not in the other. And what is striking is, um, uh, to me, when I, when I saw everything going around what happened in your first publication and then the retraction, then your second publication was the amount of, of vitriol. I mean, it was amazing the amount of uh, uh, over-the-top um, non-scientific responses that I saw in not only in um, 
popular science blogs, but also in publications, you know, newspaper publications. Um, it, it, it's hard to make a rational or constructive interaction from what I read when it's all emotion. And that was really concerning because again, they were addressing straw man constructs of your findings versus trying to say, well, we think that they're methodolog methodological flaws. And I don't know if that's been your um, observation uh, in reading it, because personally I felt, uh, again, you probably didn't feel that way, but I felt bad for you reading <laughs> some of these articles because you were just out there saying, this is what I found. <clears throat> Don't attack me or my intention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, so many things happened during that period. So there was, of course, attack on 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 the article that you're talking about, and and there was a lot of vitriol. You know, was, people were angry, but I think a lot of it was kind of drummed up, sensational, not you know, not rational, and um, um, so there's all of that. But but you know. The strategy seems to be, well, first of all, trash the study right. as much as you can, and then discredit the the researcher as much as you can. Exactly. Put into question their integrity. You know, so here comes the big slam. And so I've been, you know, I've been slammed with all of that. And you just have to, you know, do your best to push back a little bit, be <laughs> rational and reasonable. You have to um, just let it let it push push by you, and you know, because there's nothing you can do. You know, no, exactly. Uh, what was surprising to me was that it was <clears throat> one uh, one um, uh, person writing into the BMC that was able to trigger retraction, and it was uh, it wasn't even any a retract a request to the editor that had any uh, evidence behind it. So that for me, uh, as a, a scientist that also publishes in the peer reviewed literature to have one person with zero evidence come forward and say, I have concerns. I want you to retract this paper, consider retracting it. Um, that's from, from my experience is not a normal process. Usually it's, you write a letter to the editor and they publish it and the author has their chance to respond. Yeah. That, um, that is the usual thing, unless, you know, according to, there's something called the COPE guidelines for right. retraction. There's some standards, you know, and, and the, the, the usual things is if there's an absolute known error or right. you falsify data or you, you know, very egregious kinds of problems. And, and usually the researcher would say, yeah, that, that's a, that, that was a clear error. I need to either fix it or, but if there's no clear error or you know uh, miscalculation or um, malfeasance of some sort unethical then that would be the way to handle it you write a letter to the editor these are the problems these are the concerns and and then that gives the uh, the author a chance to respond and say you know you have a point here um, however and then you and then everybody learns from the process exactly right and but there's no in, in this era and on this topic, there's no opportunity for discourse or debate. Right. And that's something that uh, everyone has to remember. Uh, and that's why it's so important to be a critical <clears throat> reader. 
Um, and I think this is actually pushing a lot of people that are not normally interested in the scientific literature to actually start paying a little closer attention and try and develop the skills to be critical uh, consumers of that information. And uh, the, you know, and it's a real challenge um, because it it takes time mm-hmm. to read this stuff and try to understand it, and um, and people are busy, and so we. You know, we all rely on trusted sources to help us interpret what what reality is, and um, and so if you if you have the wrong map and you have the wrong, <laughs> you, you're trusting the wrong people, you you know it is easy to not get it right. Yeah. Now, one thing um, or one question that I have for you is: Do you consider this a uh, the equivalent of a natural or man-made disaster, what we're going through right now? No. No. Okay. I don't. Uh, it's a disaster, but I think it's a man-made disaster. That is, uh, yeah. And, and that is something that I think people are having a very difficult time trying to wrap their brains around, is uh, that there was a, um, a an effort put into releasing this uh, these injections and um, there just seems to be so much damage to it that it's it's difficult to imagine that it was actually done on purpose. And I don't know if it was done on purpose, but it's definitely producing quite a bit of damage around the world at this point. And the effort that is being put into it to suppress it is incredible. Yeah, it, it's, it's a very uh, difficult environment, and there are a lot of courageous uh, scientists and medical people who are speaking out and a lot who aren't Um, maybe some are helping in the background but they might just be afraid to lose you know i mean literally people are losing their jobs absolutely and um and 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 being discredited etc and um so uh in in addition to that i you know i i have to believe that um through the federal government a lot of payments were made in order to incentivize, um, you know, encouraging the injection and mandating and all of that stuff. So I, I, you know, we know HHS had over a billion dollars to distribute to market um, the vaccine. You know, a billion dollars. Yeah, as I recall, um, that's uh, as I recall. Okay. So, um, so there were a lot of. You know, there are a lot of incentives given to, to folks. And so if you if you were incentivized and you did these, you made these decisions on behalf of others, you're not going to be inclined to to reverse course, you know, and say that was a mistake. Right. And that's a, that's a very good point you bring up. So a lot of uh, there was economic incentive, uh, social incentive uh, to uh, to move forward with this and get it as widely distributed as possible. Um so I have to say that uh, you're in very good company uh, on the front of having uh, scientifically peer-reviewed papers retracted or withdrawn by by editors. Um, you, along with uh, Jessica Rose and Dr. Peter McCullough, as well as uh, Jack Lyons-Weiler and Paul Thomas, have the unique distinction of happy, having your papers withdrawn by the editors uh, from peer-reviewed journals on what I, what I, so far as I can tell, on spurious basis or spaces of, um, uh, of, of reasons for doing that, other that the papers were getting a lot of attention, a lot of traction. 
and there seems to be a hesitancy or at least a uh, bias by many journals uh, to do that nowadays. And, you know, to your point, uh, what are the financial incentives being applied to do that versus um, potentially allowing journal uh, publications that don't show any correlation uh, to it? Yeah. So there seems to be a lot of that going on. I think, uh, you know, um, there are at least 3,400 peer-reviewed scientific reports, case studies of, of vaccine injury and harm. Um, so, and so you, you, I, I don't think you can um, go after every, <laughs> have every paper retracted. And so there, there's a selection process. And I, I think, you know, this is my own feeling about it. Oh yeah, there you go, uh, React, that's a great resource. Um, a paper like mine has this sort of broader perspective on the potential scope of harm. Exactly. So that made it a candidate for attack. And the second is that it got a lot of exposure. It just went viral. So it, that was the second thing. Those are the two things that I think um, yep. probably trigger uh, action against. The other thing that I'll say is that I think that most suppression doesn't happen at this stage. Um, for example, Professor Norman Fenton is a mathematician and has written a number of articles, uh, very reasonable, uh, above reproach, right? And yes, um, and he 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 gets most of his papers on COVID. Just not, it doesn't make it past the editor's desk. Amazing. Right? And, um, and I think that that's um, the, the way most articles are suppressed. And, and this will happen, I think, at the, 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 the higher level journals. Uh, Absolutely. It just doesn't get past the editor. No, I'm not doing that one. Just amazing. So there is, and it could be that it's not a concerted effort. It's just a hesitancy by the editors to put anything out. There might be no no nefarious plan of uh, we're blackmailing your family if you you know uh, uh, put this out there, um, or it's just a controversy that they're trying to avoid, which is another another yeah, factor. There could well. be multiple reasons. I don't know the reasons, but exactly, yeah. and we don't know. <laughs> and again, trying to assign intentions to somebody is a uh, or game to play uh, on anyone, either from from both sides, and that's something uh, that uh, you you've never done, and you're very measured in your responses. You stick to the facts, which is always a good thing. You try, um, but it's easy to get you know sucked in, you know, and I, I, you know, I, it seems to be a strategy of attacking the research and um, in ways that are irrational and distorted. Right and then attacking the, the person um, and, you know, just putting the seed of doubt, is this person honest? Do they have any right. integrity? And so the other layer of thing that happened in my case was that somebody um, suggested or came to the university and said, you know, imposed some sort of allegation that I had done something wrong in the research process when that triggered a whole review here on campus. And it was really hard for me to know what the possible implications or consequences were because I didn't have any idea what really I thought might, I, I might've done wrong. 
because exactly. I thought that I followed the protocols. And um, well, anyway, seven months later, I you know news comes out that you know that I had followed the protocol and exactly. I didn't do anything wrong. But that doesn't get noted in the media, right? And so I I you know I posted that, I shared that, like, well, okay, but. Um, but those are, you know, strategies. They chew up a lot of your time and emotional energy, exactly, and uh, and the time of the university to go through all of this stuff, and um, and and then they use it as a way to discredit as much mm-hmm. as possible, and then people will tend to say, oh, well, that that person is, you know, not a true person, right? There you go, and yeah, you know, so. In some sense, I'm very gratified that I got through, I survived, you know, but it took a toll. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> right? It, 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 in, in, in many ways, it's, very, it's a very successful strategy. If you've Absolutely. Got the media and you've got, you know, all these tools at your disposal to cause, you know, to cause pain and discomfort. And, and then other people who might step up, look at that and say, ooh, Maybe I, maybe I won't say anything because I don't, you know, I don't want to go through that either. So that's the kind of suppression that occurs, you know, and, and, uh, you know, people like Peter McCullough, I just think, um, I mean, he, the, 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 the cost that has been extracted has been very high for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he doesn't, he just keeps moving forward. Yeah. And again, one of the things, um, I don't know if uh, the listeners know uh, this, but uh, I think that uh, the last, they haven't actually gone after his license yet, but he's certainly been um, thrown off certain uh, 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 accrediting bodies and lost some of those accreditations, uh, not because he's incompetent or hasn't done the, the work. We don't know why, unfortunately. He was the editor of two of the top cardiology journals in the world. Yep. Um, he was not renewed. He was a professor at, uh, I think, the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not renewed. Right. Um, his practice, he, he needed to move his practice. Um, you know, so um, those are the kinds of costs. And, you know, and so good for Peter for having the courage to move forward, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. But what this does is it creates huge question marks and disincentives for other people who might speak up. And they exactly. say, I can't do that. I have a family. I'm not going to go there. Yeah. So we're seeing, you know, I, I think we're seeing the impacts you know, in multiple ways. It's, it's, it's a super effective strategy and we have to keep moving against it as best we can. Yeah. And one thing that, is consistently surprising me is the number of people that are actually, even though they're seeing this, they're still standing up and not yes. backing down. Absolutely. So, so I totally agree. I just, I'm so um, encouraged by the numbers of people who are standing up and saying, no, this is not right. And excellent. So that's the um, encouraging part. And if we can do anything to, help others the more people who stand up the it's the more difficult it is to target somebody (laughs) too many too many (laughs) to go after (laughs) so i wanted to switch gears a little bit uh because this is a personal curiosity of mine um you are a professor of economics 
you are uh, an expert in governmental um, um, budgeting and analysis and audits. Uh, you've had experience. Um, and again, most I don't think most people would know this about you, but you've worked in trying to understand some of the uh, discrepancies that have been going on within the federal government on, on budgeting and budgeting priorities and budgeting mismanagement. And one, one thing that I've always wanted to get out into the uh, listening public's consciousness is the truly staggering amount of money that has just gone poof uh, in the past uh, 30 years. And I think most of it has been focused on Department of Defense, or at least that, that was one of the areas that you focused on. Um, and I know this is a big topic, but um, could you give just a brief summary of what you and you know your your uh, research students found? Because this is mind-boggling to me. Yeah, I'll try to give the uh, uh, the quick elevator speech on this, um, and then if there's a follow-up, we can you know we can go a little further. But perfect. Um, in the wake of the last uh, global financial crisis, um, I I sort of had a wake-up call because I remember um, the DOJ making an announcement that uh, <laughs> it's just really astounding to me, but they announced on TV that they acknowledged that um, the financial crisis emerged because of, of a massive fraud um, done, you know, done by uh, the major financial institutions uh, in the Western world. But um, these entities and people are, are so essential to uh, our life that we're not going to prosecute anybody. And instead, we're going to give all of these institutions billions and trillions of dollars to shore up the problems. We, we, we didn't, not only did we not punish anybody or hold anybody accountable, we gave them trillions of dollars to reconstitute their position. Right. And, um, and I, I just knew that was not true. You, you know, the uh, institutions can survive. You can, uh, you know, bring charges against leading individuals and hold some people accountable and then go from there. And it didn't happen. So that, um, you know, that was a, a paradigm shift for me. And I started to see the world in a different way. And, um, a former government official, Catherine Austin Fitz, um, who went through her own uh, trials uh, many years ago, uh, coming out of government. Um, she was a former assistant secretary of housing and urban development, had for a number of years just noted that in official government documents, money went missing. And uh, I had listened to an interview uh, with her and the latest report um, that she cited was from uh, our own government indicating that um, that uh, uh, our, our military was missing six about six point five trillion dollars was for the army and, just the army huh yeah just the army and and at the time the the budget for the army was about two hundred two hundred and fifty billion dollars a substantial so in accounting terms um, this is called a you know, an, uh, an unsubstantiated accounting adjustment. And um, within uh, the sphere of local government or a business, it would mean that somebody had a financial transaction that wasn't verified. So 
you know, if I am traveling and I ask for a reimbursement from my university, I have to show a receipt to show that I, you know, that I stayed at this hotel and I, I, you know, that kind of thing. And so the army, you know, and so usually if you have a budget of, let's say, you know, a million dollars, just say a million dollars, your, your unsupported adjustments would be just a small fraction, you know, less than 0.1%, you know, usually. And if there was a discrepancy, you'd go out and find out what happened and why, et cetera. And then there would be a report. So the army, which has, you know, a 200 and say $240 billion budget has $6.5 trillion in adjustment. You know, unsupported adjustments, and 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 you know the 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 accounting officials within government just say, well, we're not really sure. And so I I looked into that, and I helped work with some of my students to just compile those documents and then tally them up, and just do some analysis. You know, because you can you can do a FOIA request and ask for a listing of the unsupported adjustments and, and, and these adjustments would sometimes be, you know, $500 billion, $500 billion, $300 billion. And it would have some sort of general description. And it's like, well, how, what, you know, if you were actually doing accounting, <laughs> you, you would dig in and find out what, you know, what was the reason for the unsupported adjustment. And it just never happens. People just say, well, we're, you know, we're not competent. And I, I don't, be- I, I no longer believe that we're incompetent. I have federal government grants and um, the accounting procedures for those grants is very tight. Um, oh, yeah. And receipts for expenditures, and you know, it's 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 very good, very competent. And it's like this is not incompetence; this is something else. That's a good way of putting it. And if I remember correctly, um, these adjustments that were made were these uh, uh, funds uh, derived from congressionally appropriated uh, monies? Well, we don't know. Um, okay. I mean, Fair enough. we have we have what the federal government uh, um, approves for spending for the Department of Defense and for the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, et cetera. Um, so we have those numbers, and these uh, unsupported accounting adjustments are are so beyond that that we you know we can't know for sure. For sure, yeah. You know, and then. No, to, to, to sort of summarize, after um, looking at that and reporting on it and asking questions and then seeing if you could make sense of the, you know, the, the, through the FOIA request of the adjustments, um, um, the very next report for the Navy was fully re- redacted. You couldn't, there were all the numbers were blacked out. And then a year later, um, the accounting uh Standards Advisory Board, um, Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board, made an administrative rule change that enabled a small group of people within government to um, create a real financial, you know, statement, and then uh, uh, one that has been modified. And they said, and and we're 
we're going to modify it as we think, as we need, um, for security reasons. But we're not going to tell anybody how we modified it or the degree to which it's modified. Wow. So since about 2018, we really don't have financial statements that are meaningful. They might be meaningful, but um, we don't know because they told us that those financial statements were going to be modified. And we have no idea where or how much. And currently, what's the uh, the tally uh, that you, your best estimate currently regarding how much money has gone missing? Well, um, as of 2015, we were able to compile documents that tallied to 21 trillion from back, dating back to about 1998, 2000. Oh my God. And, um, and then after that, um, they, you know, the uh, reporting of unsupported adjustments stopped. Unbelievable, but uh, not surprising. And, and uh, you know, and I would say, you know, I, I hold a chair and it's called a, a chair in state and local government finance and policy. And one of the key areas that I, I think is important is transparency. So if there's a link between the questions I asked about these unsupported adjustments in, in federal budgeting and finance and uh, COVID and the vaccines, it's, it's transparency. Yeah. You can't have good policy implementation at a public institution like a university or a hospital unless you're fully informed. And if you're being told that uh, a treatment is safe and effective and it's not, then policy doesn't get implemented correctly. And um, same thing with any kind of financial statement. If you don't have proper uh, accounting and transparency, you, you, know, you, you don't really have uh, democratic institutions because you can't know what's going on. That's a very good, very good points. And I think that that is the perfect place uh, to end our uh, interview. I want to thank you again for taking the time. Uh, this was Dr. Mark Skidmore, and this is an Informed Life Radio. Thank you for listening. And uh, I hope that we get some questions coming in from the audience that we can answer later on. Dr. Skidmore, thank you very much. Thank you. Happy year. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website, informedchoice.com. 
informchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informchoicewa.org today.